It's hello, it's hello, Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. <laughs> it's, that's right. Uh, and you're Matt. <laughs> I'm Matt, you're Hillary. Uh, our listeners know how this works. We, we've, this is our Kim Stanley Robinson podcast where we read the works of the great science fiction novelist Kim Stanley Robinson and we discuss them and, and you listen to them very kindly. Uh, and, yes, exactly. And we've been gone for quite a while because of technical difficulties that we are um hopefully ironing out this uh episode uh but we've had a few semi-catastrophes and delays and um, <laughs> we thank you for your patience yes um what are we doing hillary we are finishing oh up. we've been oh. reading the mars universe of kim stanley robinson's many <laughs> universes and we're on the verge of wrapping up uh the martians the martians a book which matt has referred to as the apocrypha of the mars trilogy i keep referring to it as that and i think it uh i think it works as long as you yeah. don't take the kind of biblical thing too seriously, you know. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it it exists in a kind of supplementary relationship to the trilogy, rewriting parts of it, adding into parts of it, uh, and doing some things that don't happen in the trilogy at all. So sort of estranging you from parts of it, too, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so today we're going to talk about the stories uh, Coyote Remembers, Sax Moments, The Names of the Canals, The Soundtrack, and A Martian Romance. That's right. And then we'll have one more episode to wrap this up by uh, while we read uh, or discuss the poems and the final uh, uh, story, which is uh, delightful, called Purple Mars. Yes. And that'll be uh, at a time when hopefully our technology works uh, as it's supposed to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we'll see how this goes today. We'll see how this goes today. You guys might never hear it. And therefore, <laughs> who am I even talking to right now? Well, I mean, I'm talking, talking to Hillary, to, clearly. You're uh, talking to me, Matt. Okay. What am I? Chopped liver? You're not. You're Hillary Strang. No. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Human being. Okay. <laughs> What's so funny, so this let is me a... just say this uh, as a, a parenthetical, is that you and I are now literally talking on the phone and recording these separately rather than talking and recording our voices through some mediated thing on the internet. And because yeah. of the state of phones, you sound worse than you've ever sounded when we were recording through the <laughs> internet. I know. Like phone technology also... has gotten so bad because of these stupid cell phones we all have to have. Oh, yeah. Yes. You sound like very muffled and like you're on the other side of the world sitting inside a tube of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. Which for all I know, that could be what you're doing right now. I'm not even going to tell you what it, where, where I am or what I'm sitting in. <laughs> what kind of tube I'm sitting in. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, the technology sucks, yeah. you know, but I guess at least we can still talk to each other. It's true. Okay, um, Coyote remembers. Now, I wrote down notes uh, last time we tried to record and failed to record so that I would at least be able to uh, remember certain things about these uh, uh, things that these uh, essays, these stories that I would like to remember and talk about. Um, so Coyote remembers. So I about- was- Go ahead. Oh, I was, I was thinking um, the Coyote remembers seems like it could be a little pair with sax moments because they're both stories that are giving us, I mean, I guess really last glimpses of these two characters from the Mars trilogy. Yeah. It's like their final um, bow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the uh, the sax moments one, which we'll we'll get to, I think is very sweet and funny in some ways, if also melancholy. Uh, but the coyote one is uh, uh, this is it's like a sad. This is sad to me. Like not a not you know in a bad way. Just like it ends the our relationship with coyote on this sad note. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know if you thought that too. I do think that, I, and it and it it makes me reflect upon Coyote as a character throughout um, the trilogy because he is so. I mean, obviously enigmatic. Uh, he he's designed that way as a character, um, but it also so and in in sort of like characteristically for a coyote chapter or, or anything focused on coyote um, we're left with a lot more questions than we are answers. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think that seems true. I mean, it it feels to me like the, the sort of scene of this, you know, could be coyote sitting at the bar, like talking to somebody, mm -hmm. you know, but Mm -hmm. not somebody who we, who we know. Um, saying bits and pieces. I mean, maybe like the saddest part of it is, is his kind of take on Nergal's life, Mm. his sense of like Nergal as as having a kind of unrelieved loneliness to his life. Mm. Yeah. I watched Nergal live his lives like a second self cast loose on the wind. We all live the same stories. Nergal is like a brother to me, but he also, but I mean, it's a very complex relationship with Nergal because he's almost jealous of him in a certain way. Um, uh, He he calls him lucky, right? Nergal, golden boy that he is, such a pleasure it is to me to watch him flow through this life, fly through it always high in good spirits, active, inquisitive, interested, emphatic, empathetic, lucky. Um but only when he was young before the revolution succeeded after that things changed. Uh, but he's really trying to figure out his relationship to these characters and their relationship to him in his life. And I don't know who it, it's almost as if it's a, their journal entries, but they're cause I can't, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I can't imagine him saying these words out loud to somebody at a bar or something like that. Um, it, it, it they feel like internal monologues, but you know, really um, 
much more precise than a, than a kind of rambling um, uh, stream of consciousness. Um, so it's hard to tell what's kind of going on here. Yeah. I mean, I suppose one thing that we could think is like, you know, they're all pretty old at this point. So this is Coyote remembering mm-hmm. at what what must be pretty close to the limits of his memory. Right. right? Yeah, that's right. Um. Uh, and I mean, I, the thread that runs through it is as he as he thinks about everybody, he thinks that person is my brother, mm-hmm. you know. So it is kind of him unfolding a kind of relation and a, a sense of this sort of relation of solidarity among all of them that um, I think it really is sort of, you know, Coyote is the person who's <laughs> who is both the the loner and the person who comes in kind of randomly, the stowaway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he is also the one who then registers this deep form of solidarity, this like horizontal relatedness that he refers to as, that's my brother, Maya is my brother, Nergal yeah. is my brother, Sax is my brother in wonder. Um, yeah. Which is, that is like a sort of like lovely, a lovely thought, but it's partly, it's a sort of like accounting for the people who he is losing or has lost, you know, yeah. I think that to me is the sort of sense of it. That's where the sadness comes from. Yeah. Well, and then the only person who's not his brother is Hiroko, who is this person who, you know, if there's anybody more enigmatic than coyote, it's Hiroko. Um, and she's the one who, you know, launched him on this life journey that he's been on who brought him to mars who you know uh, allowed him to be the stowaway i mean she and maya but primarily hiroko and still it her, their relationship is so curious um and coyotes like what you know we we kind of i i know i know somewhere in green mars or something we 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 sort of get a rough story about how they met, but um, it, it still left a lot up to interpretation and speculation about what really caused her to bring him along, what his role was going to be, what his expertise was that she was mm-hmm. cultivating and curating among this weird group of people that she was putting together. Um and of course, we don't have any of the, you know, Coyote remains Coyote um, uh, in terms of his, this like uh, unanswered questions. Um, and then, and, and which also like, you know, um, helps uh, reinforce him as a really lonely character, like a paradoxically yeah. lonely character for a person who seems to know everybody and be constantly circulating and um, really responsible for um you know creating the practice of the the martian economy you know not just theorizing it but making it work on the ground right right make it happen making it happen and and creating you know the economy as a social thing he still is a person who you know nergal like the last time we saw him the last time we saw nergal see coyote coyote was like living as a homeless person um, in boroughs or somewhere, right? Like sleeping on a park bench and just partying all right. day and stuff. And 
I guess there's a utopian aspect to that kind of living, but it also does feel seem like rather lonely, right? Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like part of this piece is the sort of his his sense that it is both possible to have friends and to still be lonely. You know, to long for a form of partnership that 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 really doesn't seem like it would suit Coyote, and yet now seems to be like irrevocably lost because Hiroko is gone. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I mean, because he, you know, he begins with a, I followed her everywhere. You don't know what that does to you, loss, or maybe you do. Sure, everyone does. Who hasn't lost someone they love? It's impossible to avoid. So you know how I felt. After that, it's your friends who save you. But he says about, you know, thinking about Nergal, you see couples who have grown together like two old trees, making one plant, trunks intertwined like the double helix itself. And you think, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. It wouldn't be so lonely then. But there you are. You can't make partners by wanting them. So it's back to friends and loneliness. And there he seems to both be talking about Nergal and about himself, or at least the version of himself whose, you know, friends like Michelle are yeah. gone. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. a mel- it's a melancholy melancholy piece, I think. Yeah, and, and I think the word the the words that are chosen are chosen very carefully here too, in terms of brother uh, in the middle, right above where you started reading, not motherless but partnerless, right? Like Yeah. I don't yeah. think of these people as partners, I think of them as brothers. And as close as brothers might be able to be, they're it's something different than a partnership. Um It'd be curious and and also like it it makes me flash forward to the purple mars um chapter i think it's purple mars because uh at a certain point or no it's a pair it's a poem actually it's one of the poems where it's, it's about, one of the poems yeah we were brothers about, in those days it's the two years poem we were brothers in those days right which is really yeah. about him and his kid and and his kid um right um what else was i gonna say uh yeah. Oh, oh, so I was struggling with what kind of genre this is. It's Coyote Remembers, but at the very end, it says, you know, uh, Hiroko too, goddamn her, if she ever reads this, if she really is alive and out there hiding, as they all say, which I doubt she may get the message, goddamn you, come back. Um, so it is something that's sort of written out, whatever it's, if it's in a time capsule or something like that. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, although, yeah, yeah. I mean, it still doesn't totally, I mean, I say that, I see that if she ever reads this. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is a message to her. Um, Although, you know, it's still that opening with the like, I followed her everywhere she went, then she was gone. You don't know what that does to you, lost. Or maybe you do. Sure, everyone does. Who hasn't lost someone they love? Right. You know, there is something that is, I mean, I guess it's coyote-ish, right? You know, Mm -hmm. there's like... um, a casualness to his his speech, although it's although also um, intense in here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, describing Michelle uh, uh, throwing sacks like a vase to save him through the kiln, through the fiery furnace. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah. The question of like who the you is, so you know how I felt. Like who he's who is he really addressing this to? Um, and um, uh, what was I going to say? It does feel there's a there's a way in which it feels like um, every time I re- try to start writing a journal, 
And I like, you know, like <laughs> every year and a half, like I'm going to write a journal now. And the first entry is always the same every, you know, it's like rambling or something. Um, yeah. There's a way in which you could imagine him just writing this down in case anybody reads it in the future if they're, if they have the inclination. Um, I mean, it, I think that's an interesting thing to think too, because I, something, I mean, probably in the final episode on this book, we'll talk about this more, but I was thinking about how to describe the kind of, um, uh, the mode that this, that the Martians moves into, which is, I, you know, like, I wanted to say like elegiac, but it's, that's not right. Like it's not elegiac, but it moves into this sort of like, um, uh, I don't know, into a feeling of it being like late in the day, um, both of like letting, letting go of Mm. things, you know, there's certainly some like, you know, writerly letting go of these characters, letting go of this world, the characters themselves letting go of things, whether willed or unwilled, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and it's not, I think it's not mournful. There's, like, too much funny stuff in here and, like, too much of this kind of, like, you know, intensely lively, like, shifting of mode and shifting of focus and, like, too much sort of, like, play for it to seem, like, mournful. But there yeah. is still this kind of, like, there's a, there's a note of, you know, I don't know, like, uh, yeah, it just, it's getting late. Right. Well, I think that's a really good way to put it, like especially just thinking about it as something uh, it feels like late in the day. So, you know, the day is over. You're looking back over what you've accomplished that day. But there's tomorrow is right. You know, the sun will come out tomorrow, Hillary. I don't know if you've heard of there's a song. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but that there's something to look forward to. Right. That you can put all this, you know, you can put all this stuff behind you. There's maybe there's some unfinished things, but, you know, the day is over. It's time to stop, put this aside and start something new. Um, And yeah, I think that's um, that's definitely got an elegiac quality to it, but also this kind of sense of, uh, yeah, looking forward. I mean, it's like that in the uh, the one that we talked about last time about making the um, uh, making the intentional community on the and him pulling right. out the uh, whatever kind of sedge it is yeah, and then later la- the nut sedge <laughs> that later he learns uh that um all of his like housemates just thought that that was like a stupid obsession that he right. had whereas he felt like he was doing this like great and really significant work <laughs> um and the kind of like the charm and the absurdity of that uh, you know like the idea that like um you know uh self-reflection can actually just produce the realization that you were just like doing a thing and not actually like making anything or building anything, but just like running over the same ground again and again. Yeah. I mean, that, that feels like the kind of, that's one of the notes that seems to me to be struck a lot in the last part of this book, you know, not, I mean, I think you're right. Like the point is not about futility um, or, you know, uh, or regret Although, you know, I feel like Coyote here is, like, tinged with a little bit of regret. Yeah. Um, but the point is not about futility. That's not that's not what it is. It's about, like, what it means to encounter something that you're done with and having to, like, think about what it means to be to be done with something. Yeah. Uh, when maybe it seems like it's the whole world to you. Yeah. And I definitely, I mean, for me as a reader, that's something that has been, you know, like, reading this book, I have found, like, a very 
pleasurable revisitation of the Mars trilogy, which were books that I did not want to have end, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah. a world a world that I don't want to have be over. Um, and also a kind of like processing, you know, like yeah. uh, thinking about what it means to let go. Yeah, yeah. So what did you uh, what did you think about sax moments? So sax moments I thought was uh, delightful. It was very funny, but I also thought um, that the what is it the second uh, little blurb in here hold hold a little mm. bit holds the key to what this section is, which is this reference to Nietzsche. Like these are little af- <laughs> these are little aphorisms, right? These are little Nietzschean. Um, you know, thought experiments and uh, paradoxical, funny, poetic, philosophical sort of homilies or something to like, um, you know, chew over and uh, uh, get a bee in your bonnet, basically, like the nutsedge, right? Um, Little riddles. (laughs) And I thought it was so... I I loved it so much. It was wonderful. Also, I yeah, it it also because of the comedic but also kind of almost folksy and I mean for lack of a better word like dad humor uh <laughs> in this um or just nerd humor like this joke at the very beginning about the reductio ad absurdum and like you know, mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. a long joke about data which is hilarious. But it feels like it's the news from Lake Wobegon but like the Martian <laughs> version of that (laughs) i mean (laughs) go ahead well i just i think it's um uh yeah i mean i think that's a hilarious thing to say i think it's like very funny that like nietzsche is showing up again in this book making another somewhat unexpected appearance i mean really the joke seems to be the idea of just sax sitting down and reading nietzsche and trying to imagine like what he would have meant by it and yeah. what um what 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 he would have made of it and like uh how he would have not just been incredibly frustrated by like you know Nietzsche's tendency to just make assertions and then uh work with the assertions that he's made rather than make arguments. Yes. Yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, definitely. No, that's part of the fun that's part of the fun is like just Sachs sitting down with Nietzsche and being like, what, how can somebody, what's the big, I don't understand, you know, just being angry, getting, getting frustrated. Um, but in like a kind of generous way, you know, he says, Sachs found this Nietzsche to be an interesting writer, you know? Um, yeah. And, and of course what he re uh, when he came back, he read on, if one has character, one also has one's typical experience, which recurs repeatedly, mm-hmm. Which, you know, is a very funny thing to have uh, in a section uh, uh, in which we're seeing, like, little flashes in the life of, you know, a literary character who we know quite well, who does have certain kinds of repeated experiences. Exactly. You know, these encounters with stuff that he can't process in the ways that he likes to process things, and yet then he does process it that way, ultimately, anyway, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like that. Well, I, and I like this. This, it's it works so great as this um, literary philosophical um, opportunity for for Robinson to put to to put two Nietzscheisms together side by side, 
and make the reader mull them over, right, together. <laughs> so nobody can get more out of things, including books, than he already knows. Sex read that in a book and went out for a walk to think it over. When he came back, he read on. <laughs> if one has character, one also has one's typical experience, which recurs repeatedly. <laughs> Sachs found this Nietzsche to be an interest, or found this Nietzsche an interesting writer. So, you're forced to like sit with those two Nietzscheanisms yourself as a reader, but then also with Sachs knowing his character and like what he thinks. And but those two lines are so. I think they're just so. You know, you could really tell an undergraduate uh, first year first year seminar like take these two things and <laughs> write something that you know connects them or something like that you know what I mean like yeah yeah you figure yeah. it out you know nobody can get more out of things including books than he already knows if one has character one also has one's typical experience which recurs repeatedly I mean those are just those are two great those are two great things to write in a book in a, in a novel yeah yeah totally totally <laughs> I also I loved the um on 370 the um both the lead into and then the conversation we see him having with Maya. Yes. Um so he's been thinking about memory again Sax has been thinking about memory and then thinking he comes into this idea of the great unexplainable mm-hmm. inside human beings. Um Uh, And at the top of 370, Michelle would have welcomed this great unexplainable inside them. He had to learn to consider it as Michelle had. A clenching of all one's muscles did not actually impede or redirect one's thoughts. He groaned and took off again in search of Maya. Another time, thinking about aspects of this same problem, he went down to the Corniche and found Maya in one of her usual haunts, and they went out to a bench to sit and watch the sunset bags of food in hand, and Sachs announced to her, The thing that makes us specifically human doesn't exist. How so? Well, we are just animals, mostly, but we have a consciousness which sets us apart because we have language and memory. Those exist. True, but the only reason they work is because of the past. We remember the past, we learn from it, and everything we have learned is in the past. And the past being past, properly speaking, does not exist. Its presence in us is an illusion only. So the thing that makes us human does not exist. I've always maintained that, Maya said, but not for the same reason. Yeah. (laughs) I just, like, uh, I love that. And I'm not actually totally certain, like, you know, what Maya's reason is compared to what Sax's reason is. Yeah. Uh, But I just, I think that that, like, it's such a perfect kind of, like, uh, you know, Sax is always giving us these moments of seeing, like, what it looks like to really grapple with something, with something abstract or something metaphysical or something, you know, transcendent. Mm-hmm. Um, what it looks like to grapple with that from like a deep commitment to rationality and to process and to the possibility of knowing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and having that stage as an encounter between the two of them, these two people who come to love each other and be very close and support each other. Um, and yet also are so incredibly different in their approaches to the world and to feeling and to thinking about the past. I, I just think that that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that enigmatic last line too. Not for the same reason. I agree with you, but for different reasons. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I also, I also think that the, the little lead into that, a clenching of all one's muscles did not actually impede or redirect one's thoughts is such a great, mm-hmm. like, 
it just makes what's happening to sex so vivid because I feel like we all know that moment where you you realize that you have like completely tensed up your whole body <laughs> because you're trying to think about something yeah. and and those and it's not actually doing the thing that you yeah. think that it's doing it's just registering something else yeah. you know well and that's it's funny too because once he realizes that he he re, he then realizes that you know he's not going to that 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 his thoughts aren't going to be impeded or redirected by doing that and the only thing that's going to do that is talking to somebody and engaging in the very uh practice that he has re- realized you know creates the non-existence of the thing that makes us uniquely human right like if yeah right if right. the past only exists through language and memory and those two things only exist through an interaction with two people um and interacting between two people is the thing that makes us, you know, it's just this paradoxical mise on a beam of like, how do we even know what's going on? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's almost Cartesianism, like taken to the absolute extreme of how do I know that this is really happening? Because just because it's happening right now, that also means that in the future, it will have happened in the past, which means it doesn't exist. You know what I mean? It doesn't, I don't know if I'm making any sense. Yeah. I mean, Although it's also in that way, like, you know, there's a kind of like critique of that version of Descartes there, right? Because like, it turns out that like, it's not possible to like produce knowledge about the world or about yourself by yourself. Right. And it's not only that it's not possible to do it by yourself. It's actually that like the thing that makes us human is that we never do it by ourselves. Exactly. We always do it with other people. And we were always doing it with other people, you know, that 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 relation to others is there from the beginning, yeah. not by ourselves at the beginning and then in relation. We're in relation from the very first. And that's like the thing that like, you know, somehow is there in Sax's life, <laughs> right. particularly his life actually post his injury, where he's so deeply connected to other people. Right. So intensely connected to other people. And where he, you know, like once he's had that sort of moment of, uh, remembering his past with Anne, he's like never separated from Anne again, at least in that, you know, at the level of his sort of self-understanding or right. something. Yeah. I want to, I want sex to read Hegel. <laughs> they recognize themselves as mutually recognizing each other. Exactly. Um, I also, just to go back one brief moment, I, I, is there a journal of irrepro- irre- irreproducible results? And can I subscribe to it? <laughs> I mean, that, I hope so. that to me is a Garrison Keillor joke. I mean, that is straight yeah, up. Uh, yeah, I mean, no yeah. insult, no insult <laughs> intended at all because, you know, <laughs> I grew up listening to that, uh, to Lake Wobegon or whatever that was, Prairie Home Companion. And I got a big kick yeah. out of it uh, as a kid. So the Journal of Irreproducible Results is just a great uh, concept for a, for a journal. Yeah, yeah, I um, agree. I also love the um on 373 um it, the imbibition the force of capillary attraction in the absence of any pressure. Uh, Sachs became convinced this was a quality of mind as well. He would say of someone, she has great imbibition. And people would say, ambition? And he would reply, no, imbibition. Inhibition? No, imbibition. 
And because of his stroke, people would assume he was just having speech trouble again, which is both sad and like slightly hilarious at the same time, right? Because he also must know that people think, probably think that it's the stroke. So it's a prank that he's playing on other people too. That, that sax humor. Yeah, I mean, it, maybe it is, or maybe it's just that, like, he feels like he has this great explanatory concept, which hinges on a word that most people don't know anyway, yeah. and a word that sounds like all of these other words. So it also has a kind of, like, you know, there's a little uh, slippage along the chain of signifiers kind of joke there, right, from imbib- imbibition to ambition to inhibition, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I like, and, and I like the... Um... Going back to 370, the technolo- technology is the knack of a- so arranging the world that we don't have to experience it. And I was trying to figure out where that comes from. Like, that doesn't seem like a Nietzscheanism to me. I was trying to figure out if it's no. Baudrillard or Heidegger or who. But, um, uh, and I, so I, I like that little blurb. Because it ends with him. So technology is the knack of arranging the world such that we don't have to experience it. And then it ends with him seeing a boat in the harbor that is uh, that he realizes. um, So it says, looking at reflections of the city across the harbor, he noticed that the sea's surface was rippled in some places flat in others. And the boundaries between the two were delineated with amazing sharpness though presumably the wind was the same over both. This was puzzling until it occurred to him that there could be a thin film of oil damping the ripples in the flat patches. Someone's boat engine must be leaking. If he could get a sample from the water and from everyone's (laughs) boats, he could probably ascertain which one it was. So it's just this great moment of, he reads this thing about technology is the knack of so arranging the world that we don't have to experience it. Then he sees and deduces that that there must be a boat out there with an oil leak and rather than do the thing of like oh my god someone's in trouble because the their boat their engine is leaking he wants to run an experiment <laughs> about figuring out which boat it was and you, you know use technology well, that way so there's this amazing just kind of inversion or like this kind of um concretization of this notion that technology prevents us from you know from from experiencing the world like you know in its in its uh, completeness or something like that right like he he's compartmentalized these two things someone is in danger because their boat is leaking but also oh what an interesting experiment we could run I, I mean, and also, of course, like, he doesn't actually know that it is a thin film of oil damping the ripples. So he begins to think about, like, how would you figure out where the oil came from right. before he's even actually ascertained that it is oil that's producing this visual phenomenon that he's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's that, noting. That he's enjoying, right? Because the, the, you know, experiencing the world at that moment is him just enjoying the view. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Like, just right. enjoy it. But no, technology inserts itself between him and the world so that um, he doesn't actually have to just enjoy the pleasure of, of the view that he's got. Um, these are all really good. Um, uh, the notion that we've uh, 
we've come to the end of what physics can explain as soon as we like solve these problems. And then the question is what next, you know, what comes after that? Um, right. Right. Uh, and well, in all these moments, just, Oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say just these moments again and again of, um, you know, slipping out of what could actually be provable or understandable or able to be conceptualized into states or relations or, you know, experiences that aren't amenable to that kind of analysis. I mean, that, that feels like as when we get to the, um, almost the last little piece, him, uh, uh, thinking about the, the brilliant student wounded in the head during world war two, mm-hmm. this is on, uh, 74 to 75. Um, his his life whose life project was a, at first called the story of a terrible injury and later I'll fight on mm. who wrote in a journal every day for 25 years um who and the last bit he quotes from that is I was killed March 2nd 1943 but because of some vital power of my organism I miraculously remained alive and that's the end of that section and then we get just this flash that hand on his wrist how to tell it mm-hmm. um you know so we sort of become like increasingly, you know, we, at that point, like we just are, um, we're just thinking about the touch or the, the momentary experience and the inability to like turn that into a narrative or something coherent or something other than just that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Which then seems like that is kind of where, kind of where we end in the scene of Sax and Anne together being blown about in the storm. Yeah. Yeah. We ask why all our lives and never get past because we stop after that word in disarray. I wish I had spent more time with you. I guess then this is also us. This is a sad one too. Yeah. Right? What? Well, I mean, there's plenty of funny stuff here. And then it, you know, ends on a kind of, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, a closing, a, uh, there's a, there's a bit of regret. Um, but you know, that can only take you so far. I like to try to like is so on, on page three, 374 altruistic behavior. Um, is this sax reading marks? What if R is not a function of common descent, but of common interest? Is he discovering like class politics? (laughs) (laughs) Sachs found the social sciences very interesting. Yeah. Um, Okay. The names of the canals. Well, you know, this is just the kind of thing that I don't I don't know quite what you name a little piece like this, yeah. like what the right word is for it. It's not an essay. It's just like a little occasional thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the kind of thing that like um, when Robinson writes these things, I just I, I love them. Mm-hmm. I'm like such a sucker for this. Yeah. Uh... But somehow we're both we're both getting like this listing you know this evocative listing that might make us think about john boone chanting the names for mars right right right. 
um, this evocative listing that makes us think about like, you know, how many times Mars has been written, written on and written over and rewritten. Um, and then this really like kind of beautiful evocation of looking at your own world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this con- connection between, so uh, sort of at the, just below the halfway point, um, uh, and yet the names, we want life, we want to live, right? So that naming and living uh, go together so that there is life on Mars simply because we've named things on Mars. Like that, that is in a certain way life. And then uh, that gets connected. And then Cadmus, Aragon, Herebus, Elysius, Elysius, so silly, but I too live in a world I love. So that naming and life and love are all things that go together. Like naming is an act of love and it's a name. It's an act of giving life to something. Um, so that the question of is there life on Mars is already uh, answered in the question because we've named it Mars. So we've already given our life to it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the I mean, I love this as the sort of like, so we get the... Um, we get the idea of the early telescope observations of Mars that are able to see the big volcanoes, right? Mm-hmm. The major um, ge- geological, areological features. Um, but then, then you know, like the the thought that the lines connecting everything, even at the time, illusory lines were known to occur between dark dots in a telescope, a matter of optics and vision, right? So this sort of like... Um, uh, whatever this visual effect that produces the appearance of lines that come to be thought of as the canals on Mars, right? The canals that then also get given names, um, which is about that, like want, wanting so much for there to be life there, wanting so much that you would like, um, you know, be sure that you were not seeing some effect of like your telescope, but actual like, you know, the the evidence of some kind of like habitation of life, right? Of something of a made feature rather than a natural feature. Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of takes us back to that, the story, the first, um, what's his name? Roger Claiborne, Eileen mm-hmm. Monday yeah. story, when they find the fossil mm-hmm. or what they think is the fossil. Um, and then, you know, we have these kind of reflections from the point of view of a of a Martian on like why even as a Martian, you know, indi- indigenous or native to the place, like you still wish that there was a different kind of life that had a different kind of nativity or a different kind of indigeneity. Yeah. Um, you know, that sort of longing for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then I feel like this is also. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, this is also like a piece that is, I think, very much in the kind of like realm of stuff that you particularly pointed out a lot in the Mars books, asking us to think about like um, the visual field perspective, Mm. right? Mm. The kind of like um, relation between things that are close and things that are far, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it, it, it ends on this note of, you know, where the eye here, the the speaker, I live in a big valley on its flat floor, is clearly, um, you know, uh, indistinguishable. It's it's indistinguishable between sort of Kim Stanley Robinson himself and 
a uh, a Martian writer or, you know, that that the, those two voices have sort of become one because in reflecting upon sort of these names, the names of the canals on Mars, you are thrown back on your own earthly experience. And mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, that you, the writer, Kim Stanley Robinson, but also whoever, fic- whatever fictional, fictional writer that he invents for himself to be able to write these things and, and call himself I, call itself I, whatever, uh, live in a big valley, flat floor, mountains on both sides, visible most, most days, so that you're really, you know, um, enabled to see, the writer's really enabled to see himself, itself, as a, a creature on a planet um, in a valley surrounded by mountains that's just kind of one blip speck of sort of dust in this, you know, cosmic um, dust bin. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, just ways to relate uh, very radically disparate things to each other. Yeah, I mean, oh yeah, that last line, a valley about as wide as a Martian canal, yeah. is such a like, um, I mean, that's such a great moment for this kind of move to to ask you to think about like, you know, not just how you think about, but how do you experience the place that you live in, yeah. right? I mean, and the planet that you live on, and do you experience that as itself, mm-hmm. um, or do you experience that like through you know multiple different kinds of interpretive layers, through the names that have been laid on places, through your narrow, narrow view you take you take over the course of your day, or whatever it may be. The idea, the idea that like like could be in that in that both on Earth on Earth on Mars is beautiful. Yeah, and it's and it's about too the what do you yeah how do you contextualize or measure your own experience what what's the metric you 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 select to you know to orient yourself this is like this my my valley is as wide yeah, as a Martian exactly. canal it's not as wide as a city block or it's not uh, you know you could fill this valley with eighty four thousand school buses or whatever like that it's <laughs> what do you choose. <laughs> What do you choose? <laughs> what do you choose to, to, um, yeah? What do you choose to compare yourself to, which then, like, you know, tells you sort of something about not only where you are, but like what you are, um, and what you think and feel. Yeah, right. And like, why is it easier to like, um, you know, uh think about or imagine like the planetariness of that planet that's over there rather than the planetariness of the planet that you happen to be on. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the soundtrack, what's your, uh, least favorite, uh, artist that he, uh, mentions. <laughs> uh, I find this, uh, uh, so, I mean, I feel like after, uh, in retrospect, I mean, like, it, it does seem like really like if somebody had said, so what do you think um, Stan Robinson listened to when he was writing the Mars trilogy? It does seem like, you know, minimalism or serialism yeah. or actually like uh, prog, a little prog. Uh-huh. <laughs> Those things seem super fitting. Um I mean, probably I wouldn't have thought of that in advance, but like, uh, I actually just saw... Um, a production of 
of Akhenaten, one of the Philip Glass operas that that um, he cites here, listening to while writing Green Mars, which I have to say is uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent most of the time thinking I, I would really be very happy uh, not to be seeing the seeing the production, but just sort of listening to it and picturing um, what I picture of Mars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of the Mars of the Mars trilogy. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I don't know. For me, like, I'm not a big Pete Townsend fan. I'll uh-huh. put it out there. I, I, I figured you wouldn't be. I love Van Morrison, though. <laughs> I love Van Morrison. I have, I have a soft spot for Van Morrison, too. Oh, good. That's good to hear. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to fight about that. No. Uh, yeah, this was fun. This gives me a little bit of a listening list, uh, to, uh, to go check out. I, I don't listen to, um, classical music very well just because I get distracted by it too. Like I want to, usually I like to just have music on the background while I'm doing something, writing or reading or something. And, um, uh, I can't listen to classical music cause it's too engrossing. Like, yeah. I think a lot of people think of it as background music or something. It's like, no, like once you start listening to it, you can't ignore it at all. So it's frustrating to me. Jazz, I have a little bit of uh, easier time with, even though I really like jazz and really like closely listening to, to records. But for whatever reason, I, I can have that on the background while I'm, while I'm working and doing something else. I think that I I I don't ever listen to music when I'm reading or writing. Uh-huh. Like sometimes if I'm if I'm going to write something, I will listen to something like as I'm like moving toward the moment when I have to do the horrible thing and actually start writing. Yeah. But I can't do both of those things at once. I mean, I guess yeah. like you, I find it too distracting or doesn't um I don't know, but it's it's interesting to think about that. Like, I mean, I partly like this just as like a glimpse of a a practice, right? Get up yes. in the morning, have espresso, listen to listen to Steve Howe, listen to listen to Philip Glass, right? Yes. And then the idea that like while thinking about these different characters, you would also associate them with music. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, there's something ceremonial about it, ritualistic about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, which is important in a writing practice to have, you know, to establish your habits and to to stick with them no matter what. Otherwise, you just find any kind of excuse to not do it, which is what I've been doing for about five years now. Uh, <laughs> just looking for excuses not to do my work. When I was writing my dissertation, um, the one the thing, and also probably during a lot of paper, I mean, I started listening to this back in 2003, 2005, somewhere in there when I was doing my, my master's degree, which was uh, Fela Kuti. Um, oh, yeah, Fela like is a awesome. Big, there's a big double album of Fela Kuti, and it worked for me because it's very percussive and uh, like a very steady beat and very energetic, and I can't understand the words that he's singing. So if I can right. understand the words, then... Um, then I can't focus on writing or reading. But if if it's sort of with his accent and with the kind of specific way that he like pronounces words, I, I never really fell into um, actually 
at least what now I knew, now actually I do know because I've listened to it literally for like 15 years. So I actually did have finally, you know, can like <laughs> decode the lyrics. Um, but luckily enough, I think that the percussion and the beat is uh, enough to keep, uh, you know, to uh, propel me into like the kind of frenzied state that I need to be in if I ever want to write anything. Um, I mean, I mean, you need that, you need the, you need to, your brain to be in a place where like, um, uh, like you've just, you, you have turned down your ability to be distractible. Right. Right. I mean, and sometimes I, it does help to have something external that like, you know, takes you whatever forces you out of like your desire to like get up and like rearrange things or make more coffee or, you know, whatever it may yeah. Look at the look at the internet, whatever it may be. Yeah, I can't work at home in a quiet house at all by myself. I found like I, I think I really need, at the very least, a library. But I think a coffee shop with the right amount of, um, you know, background noise uh, where you can't make out anybody's conversations, but you know that they're there, and then it makes your brain sort of like, sh- you know, work to shut them out so that you can then focus on the you know, actually apply energy to the thing. I need some resistance. I think, I think I need, I think my brain needs some resistance to overcome in order to, you know, um, actually do any work. I just have to get up very early in the morning and, you know, I have to feel like there are a lot of hours before noon and, but I do like, like I, I actually like getting up at like, you know, five and writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, do I like it? I don't know. Probably not really. But if I have to write something and I know I have to get it done, like that's a time when I can be very productive and focused. And I like that feeling of like, you know, uh, it's not the middle of the night, but it's still dark. Um, people are waking up. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the I like the quiet of the apartment to write in, I think. I do like the quiet. But I really like. Go ahead. I was going to say, but I really like by, by noon, like my sort of ability to be optimistic about what I'm writing just like crashes (laughs) precipitously. (laughs) See, that's, yeah, that's where I'm at is I'm trying to get all my work done before noon. Um, But, and and I think like when I've been able to wake up really early in the morning, like at five or four, if I like wake up and I can't get back to sleep and I, and um, I can start doing some writing for like an hour or two before my partner wakes up then that's great but usually i can't do that and usually it's the cats waking us up and when the cats wake us up which is almost every day which is every day unless i'm having insomnia or something uh the first thing i have to do is uh you know feed them and before actually the first thing i have to do is yell at them and kick them out (laughs) of the way because they're in the way of being fed and then that puts me in a bad mood and I can't, and, and, and it's kind of ruins everything. So that's all it takes. That's Do all you it say takes. to the cats, you guys ruined things for me today. <laughs> I like being able to lay in bed in that kind of liminal dream space and have a thought come to me. And then that propels me out of bed to have to go write it down and like chase the, chase the thought. But then the other thing that used that I used to do is stay up really late at night. So like my productive hours used to be from like probably one a.m. to like three a.m. or something like that. Oof. And I just yeah. I just refuse to do that anymore. Like that's just no. I, I'm not doing that. I want to I want to go to bed. 
No, I'm too old for that. Yeah. I'm too old for that. I was just, you know, related, but uh, on a slightly different track. I was uh, playing some some Philip Glass in the house the other day, mm-hmm. and uh, the cats hated it. Yeah. <laughs> Very funny. Like, two of them just, like, woke up and just kind of, like, stared at the speakers, like, what the fuck is that? And the third one was just, like, very distressed and pacing around and looking at me, like, what is this sound in our house? Oh, man. Anyway, it's not their thing. That's fine. Uh, Well, it's okay. Cats, you know, maybe they're uh, more of, like, a Sondheim. I think this this set of cats that I have, because I don't play music as much. I used to play music all the time, so I think uh. my prior cats always had to be used to it. Um, uh-huh. But because I don't so much anymore, or I listen on my headphones so much yeah. more than I than I play music out loud, which is a you know a sad sad story. But yes. uh, these cats well, are just not used to it. Yeah, you know they find it very invasive, and you know they get that like um, they're they're like fur stands up slightly and their backs twitch a lot like what what is this <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny. it's endearing that's funny. i love it um uh, so should we talk about a martian romance we should definitely talk about a martian romance um what'd you think this is an interesting one so that it wraps up there's a whole you know sub story in this uh apocrypha of the the <sighs> The story of Roger and Eileen. Um, yeah. When when I when when Roger met Eileen. When Roger met Eileen. Um, and and then they and then they were mostly together for the next hundred plus years. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um. This was another. Yeah, I mean, I- sort of melancholy one, but um, also hopeful. It's got that same mix of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that the sort of, um, this is one where we don't, uh, I mean, first of all, we get the sort of story about, like, um, uh, climate crisis on Mars gets, does get cashed out here, that we've been seeing the bits and pieces of throughout this book. Um, You know, here, actually, we're seeing that some kind of, something of an ice age has come on. Um, And the and basically the the terraforming at least the terraforming in terms of the you know the living things and the liquid water over the surface has come to an end right yeah and the ecosystems are collapsing and there's mass die-offs happening and um there's a great deal of uncertainty about how this will what will happen how will how will they fix it will it is it fixable how long will it take what should they do about it? So all those same problems that sort of haunted, especially the Mars trilogy, in especially in the first book, about how and how much uh, terraforming to do, all of a sudden they're back. Um, right. Uh, which right. is which is like kind of like a, a perfect way to conclude this type of thing. I mean, it's a Martian romance that title i think has a lot of different applications to what's going on here um, because it's also the romance of mars right it is just the kind of romantic notion of making a new world um mm-hmm. and w- and so it's a utopian inclination which is always which is never complete right um which has to always be refreshed um and rethought 
Right, right. I mean, and we have the sort of the romance in the sense of like planetary romance too, um, that we are, you know, I mean, we're, we're here, like we get to go on this like intense sailing expedition in an ice boat. Um, right. We get to see places that we've already seen again, but this time under this enormous amount of ice and these very different conditions. Um, so we have the sort of like the tour around this kind of fantastical world um we have the you know the relationship between uh Eileen and Roger in, in its like late days um you know Roger's like we don't have much world we don't have much time left right yeah. you know however there're not that many more years that we're going to live um and then we have this sort of like you know the like not only within their little group of friends their kind of ongoing arguments about what to do and how to understand the crash and what's caused the crash but we also get the radically different perspective of the two younger people who are roger's friends who are like we don't think that there was a crash what are you talking about this is just part of a long scale process exactly well and it's it's you know the the romance um you know, superficially, we would think, oh, the Martian romance is the one between Roger and Eileen. But there's also right, the romance right. between Jean-Claude and Freya, right? And oh, yeah. In right, a certain right. way, that's kind of what the title refers to even better because we um, are witness to this, these two genuine Martians, right? They are both real Martians born on Mars, um, and they're... Which Eileen, of... Eileen is too, right? Oh, is she? Yeah, and oh, so okay. is Roger. Roger is. Yeah, I think so. Really? Okay, fine. Maybe he's a, maybe he's an immigrant, but I'm pretty sure that we learn in the first story where we see them together, the hiking one. Yeah. That Eileen is a Martian, but she's like a college girl, and she hasn't like been out that much. Right. And then that that event is what converts her to being a guide. Right. 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 And that and because she was all she's a city person, and so she never really understood herself to be a, a Marsh like what it would be what a Martian is. Right. Like. Um, right. Right. Exactly. And then and then she has this intensive relationship to Mars as the I mean, she's the one who wants there to have been life right. on Mars that right. isn't them or can't see that they are the life on Mars. Right. 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 Um, and her relationship is to it as a world as a living world. And, and Roger has that like red sense of. You know, this is this is still this place of beauty. This is still Mars, even though it's frozen mm-hmm. now, even mm-hmm. though it's not a living world in the same way. Yeah, it's interesting. I loved loved after so after they pick up the two um, younger people to uh, Freya and Jean Claude to take them with them. I just thought this is such a um, this is such a great moment. So bottom of uh, three eighty nine. So they're on the boat uh, and like they're all having whatever, all the, all the olds are having another argument. Um, <laughs> and this time like making, making claims about how much um, the like uh, higher salt content yeah. is starting to matter. Um, uh, and uh, Eileen, Eileen thinks about this. And then the truth is that in planetary ecology, sorry, as in most other fields, ultimate causes are very hard to discern. Hans now waggles a hand 
which is close, which is as close as he will come to conceding a point to Francis. Well, when you have a list of possibilities as long as this one, you don't you don't have to synergy among them. Just a simple addition of factors might do it, everything having its particular effect. Eileen looks over at the youngsters, their backs to the old ones as they cook. They're debating salt, too, but then she sees one put a handful of it in the rice. That's very funny, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so good, so good. And, you know, like, just the kind of, like, you know, the salt has turned into a matter of debate, even though it's actually out there in the world, and then it ends up in the rice pot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, ah, I love that. Um, but a little bit below that, she smiles. She hasn't been around people this young for a long time. Then through the reflections in the cockpit dome, she sees the ice outside. This is a very visual moment glowing mm-hmm. under the stars. It's a disconcerting image, but they are not looking out the window. And even if they were, they are young. And so do not quite believe in death. They are blithe. Like, so she's looking at them kissing, which is a nice thing, but it's in a reflection so she then looks, you know, it's like her, there's a rack focus of her eyes, right? So then she looks through the dome to the ice, and then it reminds her of what's happening with the planet. And then this note about they're young and they don't believe in death yet, um, which right. is really interesting because, I mean, yeah, just in terms of, yeah, I mean, all the themes of the of this novel of these novels and of uh this story in particular in terms of like this impending death of roger and eileen basically um because they're all getting to the age Uh, but then also this perceived death on from their point of view of the planet itself um and then sheath interpreting um freya and jean-claude's um, actions is being blithe to these, this, you know, catastrophe. Um, and so there's this relationship there with, with her, uh, kind of feeling that she needs to wake them up out of this or like, you know, educate them or activate them or something. And that they, these young kids, they don't care about anything these days. Right. Whereas it's actually, you know, um, and then Roger essentially throughout the course of the story, goes takes it upon himself to show Eileen that Freya and Jean-Claude don't actually feel that way. They feel a completely it's a different structure of feeling that they have right. toward Mars. That right. they they don't feel melancholy about this um because this is just their life, right? Um which is a really nice thing to think about in terms of this story, but it's a lot harder for me at this moment in the history of human civilizations, um, uh, let's say interaction with the planet earth to be so sanguine about. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think, yeah, there's so, Oh, that, I mean, that I think is another like really complicated thing to think about here. Cause we have this sort of, cause there's a way in which like, you know, um, there's not, I mean, just as like the sort of, there are, there are so many possible causes, there are so many possible and overlaid causes to what's going on here um, that figuring out like what the one cause is seems like it's not an effective way to work on or even imagine the problem. Mm-hmm. And then we have this kind of like big contest between the idea that there has been some event, the crash, which for all the old people seems to be a point that they agree on and the young people don't think that. 
they just see like natural, they see a cycle, yeah. right? A long cycle, a long winter, um, not an end. Um, and then there's the sort of like, you know, I, I lean sense that, yeah, like as you were just saying, right? Well, they're young, you know, they don't have a sense that things come to an end. You know, they're young, they think they're going to live forever. Um, uh, uh, and and for them, it doesn't seem to be, I and mean, for Freya and Jean-Claude, it doesn't seem to only be that this is what our life is. It seems to also be that they have this, like, they actually have a faith in, like, a very long duration. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's that's what Jean-Claude, in the end, you know, says, um, uh, says he, he still sees, one, he doesn't see this as a crash. Right. Two, he sees it as a long winter. Right. Spring still comes. It may not, it, there may not be a thaw, but spring still comes. Mm-hmm. It could take thousands of years, Roger exclaims. I don't care, Freya says. Um, but that means you'll never see any change at all. Even with really long lives, you'll never see it. Jean-Claude shrugs. It's the work that matters, not the end of work. Why be so focused on the end? All it means is that you are over. Better to be in the middle of things or at the beginning when all the work remains to be done and it could turn out anyway. Um, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and then at the very end, Jean-Claude gestures at the stark landscape. Say what you like, he says. Say it will all go crash. Say everything alive will th- now will die. Say the planet will stay frozen for thousands of years. Say the stars will fall from the sky. But there will be life on Mars. Um, you know, that there's... A, he also has this kind of... You know, it's not only that he has this perception of, like, why not just be in the moment in which you're living... But it's also like he has this faith that like, you know, somehow like life on Mars continues. There yes. will be life on Mars. Yeah. There has been and will be life on Mars. I mean, it's this very different sort of like temporal conception that I think is both about them being young, but yeah. is also about just a different a different orientation. But I agree with you that then like this sort of set of conversations, I mean, I, I think there's something that does map onto our current conversation about climate change which is that like the question about um you know that people uh think well or or that you know the thought that like well we could attach to and do something about this if it were an event but because it's actually like this long endemic condition that is unfolding with increasing rapidity but is not like eventful yeah um that makes it harder supposedly for people to attach to it right and there's something in there all the old people thinking of it as a crash mm-hmm. you know that suggests right oh that's the end right mm-hmm. and that's something that then you have to think about and you have to analyze and you know maybe we can do something about it right um you know set off those nuclear reactors and warm things back up mm-hmm. But but that sense that Fran and Jean-Claude have of like, but this is just this thing that we're living in and we'll live through it, that does not feel like that can, you know, certainly that is not like a like a, a an affective sense that like young people or hopefully anyone has in relation to, you know, global warming. Yeah. Here uh, and now. Yeah. Right? And it, yeah. And at least not now or for the foreseeable future, it seems like, you know. This is uh, crisis ordinary, uh, but yeah. not not ordinary at all. Um, uh, and it's hard to imagine. I think that's kind of a horizon of imagination right now is imagining a moment when um, we won't all be running around with, a, with like chickens with their heads cut off about um, the climate catastrophe because it is so, you, you know, real. Um, 
right and and uh the the task of <laughs> the task of doing anything about it in in the face of i mean at least mars had a functional government uh, well yeah exactly like <laughs> Name a functional government on planet Earth today. I'll wait, you know, like <laughs> it's just like fascism everywhere, which is just wonderful. Um, but I I, act, I really like Roger's um, technique here of like pissing off Freya and Jean-Claude to make them sort of say what they believe and uh, get them annoyed enough to basically annoy, annoyed enough. He's doing it like pedagogically, almost pedantically, uh, like not only for the benefit of Eileen, but also it, it's almost a way of like, you know, he wants Freya and Jean-Claude to be pissed off at, at these old people and sort of scoff at them. Um, there's almost a way in which it's it's it is a kind of political project of his to like, you know, get them mad enough to sort of assert their, you know, their beliefs and their values. Um uh right. it's it's interesting yeah i it's not yeah yeah i mean and and we and but you know we also like it is funny to we end with jean-claude but i don't i think that the story doesn't resolve for us like who we're supposed to think with here mm. because in some ways eileen seems equally equally right in her assessment of what's going on i mean uh, what was alive is no longer alive. And even if there is life, you know, underneath the layers of the ice, um, the sort of uh, that that version of a world just doesn't exist and is not going to ever exist again. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And of course, it's not going to exist for her because she's not going to live to see it. Right. Um, right. And I suppose like the kind of, you know, Jean-Claude's why be so focused on the end? All it means is you are over better to be in the middle of things or at the beginning is like a particularly hard thing to think about when like, for example, you know, you just wrote like three really amazing novels about terraforming <laughs> yeah. Mars and now you're done. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's um, part of the melancholic, the kind of bittersweet flavor of the end of this, uh, of this you know, collection um, and this kind of phase of his productivity, right? Um, um, I mean, I I do love that the the story, like, uh, you know, the story doesn't, like, the thing that it doesn't, I mean, it, maybe it doesn't really resolve anything, but one thing it, it definitely doesn't resolve is, is Eileen and Roger's relationship, which yeah. is just still this, like, I mean, they seem to have a relationship that is just being in the middle of it. Yeah. Not demanding that it be something else, not, you know, like, and, and doesn't seem to be the sort of that thing that Coyote imagines Nergal wanting, right? The two people entwined like strands of DNA. I mean, right. it kind of seems like Eileen and Roger have figured out another way that isn't any less about them loving each other or being companions for each other. Right. Um, uh, you know, and I like that the story doesn't have to end with like, you know, making that into something or even telling us the end of their story. Right. Yeah. Because this is, this is it. Right. Yeah. 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 I like that. I mean, after this, we get, you know, a bunch of poems and uh, a, yeah. a story about uh, finishing, finishing writing a book. Finishing writing a book. I love that it ends in poems, but we're going to talk about those uh, at a later date because I need to reread them. Yes, for sure. But and they're all because they're also for sure. 
be and partly I need to reread them because they're so um, good and well done. Oh, to- I totally agree. As uh, evidence of that, I have the. Uh, this is not evidence of that, but I, I, t- I have the the lock screen of my phone as a picture of a couple of stanzas from one of the poems. Nice. I just think it's great. I really love it. He uses Terzarima. <laughs> I assume that you will be going through all the poetic forms that are being used. I will get out my old uh, uh, book, textbook from English class and uh, figure out, uh, what is it called? The Glossary of Literary Terms or something like that. No. Nah. <laughs> ni- I remember it cost $90 when I got it in uh, 1997 or whenever that was. And that's why I haven't I'll be honest. Because that's like, you know, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of dough. No literary term or literary terms are worth that much money. Oh, man. That was was back in the days, Hillary, when students had to buy books, you know? Oh. Instead of reading everything on their iPads. Oh, yeah. It's where it's free, right? Where it's free. (laughs) It's not. Okay. Um, We're going to wrap up this episode, yes? Yes. This so was, this uh, was episode number episode... 50. Hillary, this was f- episode 50. What? Really? We hit the century the half century mark. This is our Or the sen- or the century mark. Go- well, <laughs> this is our 50th uh no, our golden anniversary of our uh episodes. Oh. Did you get me a present? I didn't. Did you get me one? No. Okay. No, I Fine. didn't. Fine. Fine. I don't recognize things like anniversaries. No. They're pointless. No. Anniversaries, birthdays, holidays. Every day should be a holiday. Uh, and until that happens, I'm not recognizing any of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> bold, bold stance from Hillary Strang. Bold stance. Thank you. Thank right. you very much. Uh, so next time we're going to talk about If Wang Wei Lived on Mars and Other Poems uh, and Purple Mars. And Purple Mars. Uh, I'm super excited for that. I'm excited as well. Uh, and uh, until then, you can email us at what is it? Marooned on Mars podcast at gmail.com. Is that right? I think so. I think that's right. You would think after uh, 50 episodes, I would know the, our email address. I feel like I get more confused about it every time. Yeah, it's a confusing email address. Uh, <laughs> and if you, but you can definitely email us. And you could definitely uh, twit, twit, Twitter at us, tweet at us. Uh, tweet us. At podcast. Podcast on, on Mars. Podcast on Mars. Rate and review us on iTunes and all that kind of stuff. And until then, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, I'm hitting stop. Stop.